Welcome to the Rosenbach Podcast. I'm Alex Ames, and this is Season 1, Books and Bitters, Adventures in Book Collecting, in which we explore the stories behind fascinating objects in the Rosenbach's collection, and engage in critical conversations about the place of rare books, libraries, and museums in modern-day life. This episode is titled, A Mother's Grief, A University's Library, How Eleanor Elkins Widener's Loss on the Titanic Changed the Rare Book World. This episode is the first half of my conversation with Leslie A. Morris, Susan D. Block, and Sue E. Morris of Harvard University. The discussion will continue in the next episode. We'll pick up the story of the Rosenbach's association with the sinking of the RMS Titanic that we discussed on the previous episode of the podcast, considering how Philadelphia socialite Eleanor Elkins Widener's harrowing experience on board the doomed ship, and the process by which she overcame her grief at the death of her beloved son, changed the rare book world forever. We'll also talk with two experts in bereavement and grief processing to consider what lessons we can take from Mrs. Widener's experience as we deal with grief and change ourselves, especially coming out of the deadly pandemic that has reshaped our everyday lives. At the Rosenbach, we value interdisciplinary conversations that bring the arts, humanities, and sciences together. This is certainly one of the most intriguing conversations I've ever had about rare books and libraries, and I'm thrilled that you are joining me for it. I'm joined for this episode by three distinguished guests who will help us both understand the full story of Dr. A.S.W. Rosenbach's relationship with the Widener family and make meaning from the shocking human story behind the construction of the Widener Memorial Library at Harvard. Leslie A. Morris is the Gore Vidal Curator of Modern Books and Manuscripts at Houghton Library, part of the Harvard University Libraries. Prior to taking up her position at Houghton, Morris worked in the collections department at the Rosenbach in Philadelphia, where her interest in the story of Dr. Rosenbach, the Wideners, and the Titanic first developed. In 1995, Morris published an article in the Harvard Library Bulletin titled Harry Elkins Widener and A.S.W. Rosenbach of Books and Friendship, which remains the standard account of the history described in this and the preceding podcast episode. Morris received her B.A. in History from Northwestern University, followed by a library degree at the University of Chicago, during which she was awarded a two-year internship in the Special Collections Department. She then went to the U.K. and worked in the rare book trade for a year, then went back to school at Leeds University to obtain an A.M. in Bibliography and Textual Criticism. Her first professional position was at the Rosenbach Museum and Library in Philadelphia, where she was curator of books and manuscripts for eight years, leaving Philly to become curator of manuscripts in the Harvard College Library, then curator of modern books and manuscripts. Her position was endowed by a bequest from the author Gore Vidal, whose papers she had earlier obtained for Harvard. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast episode, Leslie. 
It's so great to be back at the Rosenbach, Alex, uh, even if it is only virtually. My next guest, Dr. Susan D. Block, has been a national leader in the development of the field of palliative medicine in the United States, has led major innovative educational and quality improvement projects in a variety of areas, is known internationally as an expert in medical education, faculty development, communication, bereavement, and health system change. Over nearly 20 years, as its founding chair, she built the Department of Psychosocial Oncology and Palliative Care at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Brigham and Women's Hospital, both based at Harvard Medical School, and grew that interdisciplinary program into one of the largest palliative care programs in the country. In addition, with her husband, Andy Billings, she founded and co-directed the Harvard Medical School Center for Palliative Care, a national center of excellence in palliative care education, training thousands of clinicians from around the world in award-winning courses. In 2011, with Atul Gawande, she started and led the Serious Illness Care Program at Ariadne Labs, a joint center for healthcare innovation at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard School of Public Health leading that program until 2017. Dr. Block received her A.B. from Stanford University, her M.D. from Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, and completed residencies in both internal medicine and psychiatry at Beth Israel Hospital in Boston. My final guest is Dr. Sue E. Morris, who holds a Doctorate of Psychology and is a Senior Clinical Psychologist and Director of Bereavement Services at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. Sue began her career as a clinical psychologist in Sydney, Australia, on a community-based adult mental health team. From day one, she was interested in the area of grief and loss, and was surprised by how little formal education and training she received at university around working with the bereaved. Dr. Morris is a passionate educator and began to write self-help books in the late 1990s. To date, she has had six books published, four co-authored with an Australian colleague, and two having been written independently, which are about dealing with grief. Working at Dana-Farber has allowed her to combine her interests of writing about grief, working with the bereaved, and educating health professionals about the nature of grief and how to take care of themselves. Thank you for joining in on this conversation, Sue. Thanks, Alex, uh, for inviting me. It's uh, great to be here. For listeners, I want you to know that this episode will touch on important issues in psychology and medicine, but the advice offered here is not intended as therapeutic or medical in nature. Dr. Block and Dr. Morris will provide some resources throughout the conversation for anyone interested in seeking more formal guidance. Thanks again to all of you for joining me for this conversation today, and I want to uh, get started uh, with Leslie to help really fill us in uh, on the context and the history of the Harvard University relationship to the Titanic disaster. But before we really dive into Harvard's association with the Widener family and Titanic, Leslie, please help set the stage for listeners. Can you tell us a little bit about the Widener Memorial Library, the Houghton Library, and how these two institutions fit into the wider Harvard University library system? Sure, Alex. It's a little complicated, so I'll try to simplify. The Harvard Library is really a confederation of 28 libraries across the various faculties at Harvard. 
The Harry Elkins Widener Memorial Library and Houghton Library are both part of the Harvard College Library, um, which is part of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. So Widener Library is really the centerpiece of the Harvard Library system. It largely serves uh, a wide variety of research interests. It's about uh, the system as a whole, about 20 million books, uh, 400 million manuscripts and archives, and of course these days, uh, millions of digital objects and data sets. So it's a big system, and uh, Widener Library being kind of the centerpiece of it um, is very visible in the center of Harvard Yard, looks rather like a Greek temple. And Houghton Library is really the rare book and special collection unit of the Harvard College Library. In the previous episode of the Rosenbach podcast, uh, my colleague Rosenbach curator Judy Gustin and I gave listeners a cursory overview of Dr. Rosenbach's work with Eleanor Elkins Widener to build a library in honor of her son Harry following his death on the Titanic. I'd like to rewind and ask you, Leslie, to provide more details about the relationship between the Widener family and Dr. Rosenbach and how they came together to create such a lasting legacy at Harvard. First, I'll ask, who was Eleanor Elkins Widener, and what role did her family play in Philadelphia society? What were the Elkins and Widener families' collecting interests? Well, Eleanor Elkins Widener was the daughter of William Elkins, and uh, William Elkins was a business partner of P.A.B. Widener. Both families really had working-class origins. The uh, William Elkins began his career as a grocer in Philadelphia and P.A.B. Widener as a butcher. From those rather humble beginnings, they built up immense fortunes, uh, and the two men really became business partners in combining to buy up all of the streetcar lines in Philadelphia and create the Philadelphia Rapid Transit System as the city was expanding, um, this became an extremely lucrative uh, investment for the two men. And as with many uh, self-made men, they expanded outwards from the rapid transit system into various other interests in oil and steel uh, and other investments. The two families were close friends. Um, Eleanor eventually married George Widener, so that friendship between uh, William Elkins and P.A.B. Widener was carried into this marriage between Eleanor Elkins and George Widener. Of the two families, really, it's the Widener family who uh, became most interested in collecting. P.A.B. Widener was really focused on old master paintings, illuminated manuscripts. Um, He had a real visual interest. His son George doesn't seem to have been a collector, but his son Joseph Widener um, really carried on his father's interest in paintings and the visual arts. 
Eleanor Elkins, according to her son Harry, uh, collected porcelain and silver. So she obviously had many of the same visual interests as the Widener family did. And I'm sure this was immensely strengthened once she became a part of the Widener family. Her interest in collecting uh, was really passed on to her son, Harry Widener, um, who seems to have been the only one of her three children um, who really carried on her collecting interest. How important was Dr. A.S.W. Rosenbach to the Wideners and vice versa? Well, I think that uh, the Wideners were more important to Dr. Rosenbach than Dr. Rosenbach was important to the Wideners initially. Dr. Rosenbach had started uh, a rare book business with his brother, Philip. But for the first few years of the company's history, it really did struggle a bit. For Dr. Rosenbach, really making this connection with the Widener family was extremely important to the development of his business interests. They were his first important customers, his first really wealthy customers. And that relationship gave him an entree into the circles of other wealthy Philadelphia collectors. So for Dr. Rosenbach, this developing relationship with the Widener family was very important. For the Wideners, initially, um, they were already established collectors, um, and they had existing relationships with other dealers. It was really Dr. Rosenbach's relationship with Harry, and Dr. Rosenbach met Harry when Harry was a sophomore at Harvard and home on a Christmas vacation. It's not exactly clear how they initially met. Harry, who had already started collecting in a small way, may have come into the Rosenbach store in Philadelphia. But in any case, Dr. Rosenbach, who was then in his 30s, made a connection with Harry. Rosenbach was probably a bit younger than most of the dealers that the Widener families were accustomed to dealing with. And from that beginning, it really developed into a friendship between Harry and Dr. Rosenbach. So Rosenbach would make visits out to Linwood Hall, which was where the Widener family had their base in Philadelphia. Um, and Mrs. Widener, I think, I mean, again, I have to, to speculate a little bit, um, we don't have a really good paper trail for the development of their relationship, but I think Mrs. Widener saw the closeness between Harry and Dr. Rosenbach, and so she, wanting to really develop Harry's interest in collecting, um, started going into the Rosenbach Company on uh, important holidays like Christmas or for Harry's birthday. Um, and she would spend quite substantial sums of money buying gifts for Harry um, and his book collection. Um, so in the early years of the relationship between Dr. Rosenbach and the Widener family, it was really Mrs. Widener who would buy things for Harry from Dr. Rosenbach and then give them to Harry for his collection. It really wasn't until after Harry's graduation 
from Harvard um, and his becoming uh, a salaried member of the Widener family business where he had an income of his own that he really started developing a uh, stronger financial relationship with Dr. Rosenbach and buying more on his own. Um, At that point, Mrs. Widener kind of steps back a little bit. Um, She does continue to buy from Dr. Rosenbach on Christmases and for Harry's birthday, but the the shift in the relationship between the Widener family um, and the Rosenbach company becomes more between Harry and Dr. Rosenbach. Um, now, throughout all of this, um, the various uh, collectors in the Widener family would call on the Rosenbach company for uh new draperies or to regild a painting frame uh, for one of their old master paintings. So it's obvious that the relationship between Harry and Dr. Rosenbach did morph into a closer relationship between the family and the Rosenbach company itself. As we had discussed on the previous episode of the Rosenbach podcast, the Wideners had been on a shopping trip to Europe, when they found themselves returning to the U.S. via the Titanic. Harry Widener and his father George perished in the disaster, whereas his mother, Eleanor Elkins Widener, made it uh, into a lifeboat. Leslie, pick up the story from there. How did Mrs. Widener experience this trauma, and how did she handle her grief after returning to Philadelphia? Well, unfortunately, we don't have that many records that tell us about Eleanor Elkins Widener in the immediate aftermath of the Titanic disaster. I mean, obviously, to to lose your husband and son um, and be out there on the North Atlantic amidst this great disaster had to have been traumatic. Um, There is actually a newspaper account in the Boston Herald Um, where Eleanor was interviewed by a reporter, where she tells the the story of her last moments with her husband and son. Um, She recounts that they felt the collision with the iceberg, but really didn't think anything of it initially. Um, And it wasn't until more than an hour later that her husband, George, became kind of concerned and went up on the deck, um, came back, got their son, Harry, from his separate uh, cabin on the Titanic and brought him into the stateroom. Um, And then George and Harry went up on deck to help the captain and the crew with uh, the passengers in the steerage, according to Eleanor Widener. That was the last time that she saw her husband and son. She was then summoned out of her stateroom and with her maid put into one of the lifeboats. She was then rescued by the Carpathia. She recounts in this newspaper article that she saw someone, uh, one of the officers on the deck of the Titanic with a pistol and he shot himself in the head and fell into the water. She also recounts that she saw other people jumping from the deck of the Titanic into the water. But she doesn't really tell this newspaper 
paper reporter more than those basic facts. It's really only in letters that she wrote, sometimes years following the Titanic disaster, that she really expresses the deep grief that um, that she felt. Um, and there is one letter that she writes to Dr. Rosenbach when they're working um, to build up the collection um, and the library at Harvard that I find really very moving. Um, and I really choke up um, every time that I read it. Um, and maybe, Alex, I could just read an excerpt from that letter to, to just show really the, the depth of her feeling about her loss. Would that be okay? Yeah, please do. So Eleanor writes to Dr. Rosenbach, When the library is finished, I want all the books installed there. Then I will feel happiness and know that I have done as my dear boy wished. Over two years have gone since I lost him, and I am no more reconciled than I was at first, and never will be again. All joy of living left me on April 15, 1912. Forgive me for writing this to you, but you knew, Harry, and understand my sorrow. So two years later, she still feels so deeply about the loss of her son. And I know she doesn't write often or really at all that I found about the loss of her husband, but she did build a, a memorial chapel to him at their church um, in Cheltenham, uh, outside of Philadelphia. Um, so I'm sure she felt the loss of George as well. But I think there's something about the loss of a child um, that really does go much deeper. Um, and I'm sure we'll hear more of that later in this conversation. That letter is so heart-wrenching, Leslie. So thank you for for sharing it with us. It's a real treasure, you know, in the in the Rosenbach's collection to have that um, beautiful and and you know incredibly sentimental letter. And it's also a good segue into a conversation about Dr. Rosenbach, to whom she she wrote this letter. Um, it's important to recognize that Dr. Rosenbach who had really helped launch Harry Widener into the world of rare book collecting, lost not only a friend when Harry died, but also one of his most promising younger customers. Leslie, can you tell us a bit about how Dr. Rosenbach and Mrs. Widener interacted uh, in the days, weeks, and months following the Titanic disaster? Um, what I should first mention um, is that Harry Widener actually made a will in 1909. So after his graduation from Harvard um, and uh, three years before the Titanic disaster, and it's a very brief will, but in the will, he leaves everything uh, to his mother. Um, and also in the will says that when Harvard should have a suitable place to house his collection, um, that he wants his mother to give his collection 
to Harvard that it should be kept together and called the Harry Elkins Widener Collection. So it's a little odd, (laughs) really, that uh, someone at the age of 24 should be thinking about not only making a will, but also about what would happen to his collection should he die. So I think that will does tell you something about how important collecting had become to Harry and the depth of the trust he had that his mother would do the right thing at the right time. So it's my belief that after losing Harry um, and returning from this really traumatic experience on the Titanic, that Eleanor Widener really latched on to those instructions in Harry's will. Um, And there are really two parts. There's the collection itself. Um, And she turned to Dr. Rosenbach really in the weeks immediately following the Titanic disaster Um, Harry had left bids for several important sales that would have taken place after his return from his trip to England. And she told Dr. Rosenbach to execute those bids and told him to get everything. Um, So really, she gave him unlimited resources to buy what Harry had said he wanted. Um, And he did. He bought everything that he had bid for, for a couple of auctions that took place immediately following the Titanic disaster. And she also decided to entrust Dr. Rosenbach with creating the collection that Harry would have created had he lived to continue collecting. So Harry had been collecting really along the lines of his interest in 19th century authors like Robert Louis Stevenson, Robert Browning, Walter Pater, uh, Charles Dickens, which was a great interest of his. Um, And so Rosenbach continued to buy important books and manuscripts along the lines that Harry had indicated he was interested in. But the other part of that will directs that Harvard should have a suitable place to house Harry's collection. So that's really what Eleanor turned her own attention to. Now, uh, the librarians at Harvard um, had been thinking for many years that Harvard needed uh, a new library. The old library, Gore Hall, was really overstuffed and not in very good shape. You know, the roof leaked, um, the stacks were inadequate, it was unheated, uh, a lot of work needed to be done. And they had been looking for a major benefactor to do something about what was really becoming a crisis situation for um, the college and the university. So there were many Widener connections with Harvard, and Harvard alums are extremely loyal uh, to the college and the university. 
So John B. Stetson, um, who was a good friend of Harry's and with whom he had been having conversations about what should Harvard do about the situation of the library uh, before Harry went away on this um, ill-fated trip to England, became the liaison between Eleanor Widener and the Harvard Library. And really, by the end of 1912, six months, well, about eight months following the Titanic disaster, Eleanor Widener signed an agreement with Harvard that she would build a new library for Harvard. Construction began immediately. Gore Hall itself, all of the books were moved out to temporary storage across the university. Um, And Gore Hall itself was razed to the ground. Eleanor Widener sent her architect, Horace Trumbauer, whose firm had built the Widener home in Philadelphia, Linwood Hall, um, down up to Cambridge to look at the site and to come up with plans. Mrs. Widener was extremely involved in all of the plans for the library. She approved the design. She approved uh, the furniture that would go into the library. She approved the decorative scheme of the library. So with Dr. Rosenbach really taking charge of building Harry's collection um, and Eleanor herself becoming um, extremely involved in the building of the library. She had both of Harry's wishes um, fully covered. So we know from letters um, that Dr. Rosenbach himself wrote that in the months um, and years following uh, the Titanic disaster, he was out at Linwood Hall three or four times a week. He was not only cataloging Harry's collection um, and buying new things and cataloging things as they came in, but he also really became Eleanor's secretary. He helped her respond to all of the letters that came in from other collectors and Harry's friends uh, to Eleanor expressing their their sorrow and regrets and, and memories of Harry as a man and as a collector. So he became really an indispensable part of Eleanor's life. And the other Wideners, given that he was there at Linwood Hall so often, would also consult with him um, if they were considering buying books or manuscripts um, for their collections. Um, And Dr. Rosenbach also got P.A.B. Widener involved in buying um, the Valima letters. This is this very important series of letters that Robert Louis Stevenson wrote uh, when he was living in the South Pacific at his house, uh, Valima. So P.A.B. Widener was convinced to buy those to augment Harry's collection. So really, the other Wideners did become involved in in building up the Widener collection um, as it later became um, in its giving um, and its 
gift to Harvard as part of um, the Harry Elkins Widener Memorial Library. There is a very interesting that Eleanor's second husband, uh, Dr. Rice, wrote um, to one of the Harvard librarians uh, following the opening of the library, where he says, um, please try to make sure that Harvard librarians give the library its full name, the Harry Elkins Library. Harry Elkins Widener Memorial Library, rather than simply Widener Library. Um, Dr. Rice says, not a penny of Widener Library went into the building. Um, So really, Eleanor Widener made sure that this um, centerpiece structure on the Harvard campus was her memorial to her son, Harry. I'm sure that the other Wideners would have been happy to contribute, but she really did see it as her project. And it's estimated that in the end, um, the library cost about $3 million, and that's in 1915 dollars. So it would be the equivalent of a really vast sum in today's dollars. So that's kind of the very broad outlines of what happened in the immediate aftermath of the Titanic disaster and up to the opening of the Widener Memorial Library. So what was Mrs. Widener's life like after the completion of the library, after the completion of this book collection? Leslie, do you think she was able to find some some new piece, have a different lease on life? Or what was she sort of always you know, pointed back toward the Titanic disaster and then this monument that she created on the university campus? Well, it's interesting because on the platform at the dedication of the Widener Library in 1915, she met Dr. Alexander Hamilton Rice, um, and they were married five months later. So, in a way, the completion of the Harry Elkins Widener Memorial Library did serve as kind of a closing point in her life. You know, she had completed this big project as a memorial to her beloved son. And her life with Dr. Rice was extremely adventurous. He was a surgeon uh, and a South American explorer, and she accompanied him on almost all of his trips. She accompanied him up the Amazon uh, twice. Um, They went exploring all over the world, and they had an extremely adventurous life together. Quite a change from her more homebound, um, socialite life in Philadelphia. But she always did come back to the library frequently. Um, I think she wanted to check up on uh, the Widener room to make sure that it was being properly taken care of. So she did make many trips back to the Widener library. And she did write to other friends that, that really the loss of Harry was always with her. And it never really 
completely went away. So while she did change her life rather completely, she always maintained that link with Harry and the loss of him that the Widener Library and Harry's collection really remained a touchstone for her throughout her life. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, what the Widener Memorial Room looks like today? How many books are housed there? And I'm particularly curious if you could share a bit about the fresh flowers uh, sitting on the table under Harry's portrait. Well, I'll I'll kind of start with um, setting the stage. So uh, Widener Library itself looks rather like a Greek temple. There's this grand flight of stairs uh, leading up to a colonnade um, and the entrance of the library. So as you enter Widener Library, you're really confronted by this vast flight of marble stairs that lead up to the memorial room. So you walk up this flight of stairs through a rather grand entrance and into this amazing marble rotunda with a soaring uh, dome and skylight. And you walk through this rotunda into the Harry Elkins Widener Memorial Room itself. The room is surrounded by uh, or lined with glass bookcases where Harry's collection is enshrined. And immediately in front of you is Harry's portrait over this very grand fireplace. The room itself is uh, has dark paneling and in style is very much like a room in Linwood Hall in Philadelphia, which was the Widener home. So it's very grand, furnished quite richly with dark oak furniture and comfortable chairs. The room originally did have a curator who was in the room and on the desk of the curator there would be freshly cut flowers. Now, a number of stories have grown up around um, Widener Library and the Widener Room and Mrs. Widener. Um, So Eleanor did request that there always be uh, fresh cut flowers in the Widener Room. And she did establish an endowment when the library opened for the upkeep of the Widener Room. So yes, today there are always um, fresh cut flowers in the Widener Room. But Eleanor did not say that these had to be red roses, um, which is one story that I often hear from tour guides who are paused in front of Widener Library. But the part about fresh cut flowers is indeed true. The collection itself um, is about 3,300 items all told. Um, and those are all housed in the Widener Memorial Room itself. That is one of the other stipulations that Eleanor uh, put on the collection. Um, and the collection has to be kept together and has to be kept in the Memorial Room. I would 
would estimate that about a third of the items in the Widener collection were actually purchased after Harry's death uh, by Dr. Rosenbach, um, either in executing the various bids that Harry had left at auction or in purchasing along the lines that Harry had laid down for his collection. So while most of the collection is material that Harry himself purchased, I'd guess about a third of it was actually purchased after Harry's death. Leslie, using your curatorial viewpoint, can you give us a sense of how significant this collection is within the context of you know, other well-known uh, rare book collections with which Dr. Rosenbach is associated. And I'm also curious if you can share more about, um, again, sort of zooming out for a b- broader library perspective, um, the work of special collections at Harvard, uh, of which you know, the, this Widener collection is, is, is one key nodal point. Can you give us a sense of how the special collections within the library system uh, figure in the intellectual life of the university and uh, more broadly than that, sort of the intellectual and scholarly life of the nation and world? Well, to start with the, you know, how to compare Harry's uh, collection to other collections of his day. Well, you know, he died at the age of 27, um, and he was really at the beginning of what should have been um, a long collecting career. So, you know, 3,300 items is much smaller than collections formed by other collectors who were Dr. Rosenbach's big clients like Henry Huntington or J.P. Morgan. And that's really a function of Harry's death at such a young age. His emphasis on collecting 19th century authors was something that was shared by other collectors of his day, for example, Amy Lowell. But it was uh, a somewhat new direction in collecting. Um, Morgan and Huntington and his grandfather, P.A.B. Widener, focused more on illuminated manuscripts um, and incanabula, early printed books. So Harry's interest in the 19th century and his statement that really he only collected books um, that he was interested in um, and books that he read, that was his interest in Robert Louis Stevenson, really. He loved Treasure Island. That was something of a departure, uh, but was a trend in collecting that did persist in the mid and late 20th century. So when you put Harry's collection in the context of other collections, I would have to say that it was a very promising beginning And it really was disappointing and a shame that he didn't live to take it possibly in new directions. Within the context of Harvard today, special collections and rare books and manuscripts have an increasingly important role to play. The Widener Collection and the Houghton Collections are only parts of the special collections um, at Harvard 
each of the faculty libraries has its own special collection. So in total, Harvard special collections cover an enormous uh, range of topics at the university. Faculty and students are increasingly interested in using primary sources for research and teaching. At Houghton itself, we have over 300 classes a year that use rare books, uh, manuscripts, and archives uh, in teaching Harvard students and students from outside Harvard. Um, we do host classes from other um, Boston uh, colleges and universities to use our collections. So I think that materials like those that Harry collected um, and that Harvard continues to collect are increasingly used by students and faculty, not only at Harvard, but across the university. And certainly in terms of research, we have broadened immensely the scope of what we collect I'd say if you talked to someone about the Houghton collections 50 years ago, that the emphasis would have been on kind of the great rare books, on early books and manuscripts. Whereas in more recent times, we've tried to greatly broaden that scope into collecting in-depth in archives uh, focused on literature and history. Publishing has become an important area of collecting, and we try to follow trends in instruction at the university. So there's much more interest these days in the counterculture and on sexuality in various aspects, and we've certainly expanded our collecting into those areas as well. So we continue um, all of the special collections at Harvard to focus on great books and our traditional strengths, but we do try to keep in touch with what students and faculty are interested in for their teaching and research and follow those new lines of inquiry in developing the Harvard collections. Leslie, the final question I have for you uh, at this moment is sort of a personal one. I'm curious, you've lived so much of your professional life um, studying and working with and somewhat in the shadow of these these great characters like Dr. Rosenbach, Eleanor Elkins-Widener, Harry Elkins-Widener. I mean, on on a daily basis, you're interacting with with these people. Um, what's it like to know that so much of the world you inhabit as a, as a curator, as a library professional, was shaped by these remarkable events and people surrounding the Titanic disaster? Well, for me, since um, I really consider myself an historian, uh, I find the personalities involved and um, their lives uh, so fascinating. And I do feel that it's hard for a curator to really understand the collections um, and building collections unless you understand what's come in the past. Why were these books and manuscripts important? What did the collectors who built these collections think about informing 
their collections? And how does that knowledge really inform the uses that you make of those materials? And how can you repurpose what they built for a particular reason into something different to serve the needs of people today and people in the future. So for me, knowing more about what came before is really an essential element of how I operate as a curator. And Other curators may have a completely different approach to it and just be interested in the now, um, and they can build great collections that way. But I think for me, particularly beginning my life at the Rosenbach, my professional life, I should say, at the Rosenbach, and knowing so many of the collectors, um, that eventually gave their collections to Harvard and how Dr. Rosenbach interacted with them. I mean, actually, I credit that with getting me my job at Harvard because I knew so much about the collections from working at the Rosenbach and with uh, the Rosenbach archive and the papers there and knowing what Dr. Rosenbach sold to these people whose collections ended up at Harvard. And that's really why it continues to be a research interest of mine. Um, The more I work in this area, the more interconnected it all seems. And it's those interconnections that really interest me um, and that I think help me be a better curator for the Harvard collections. Well, thank you so much, Leslie, for laying out this absolutely fascinating history for us. One of the things that you mentioned in one of your your comments earlier was, in, in a way, how odd so much, so many aspects of of this story can seem uh, specifically the, the point about Harry's having written the last will and testament when he's in his twenties that really laid the blueprint for what came in terms of you know, his his collection post tragedy. I also think of Harry's book plate, which you know, shows a, a woman looking through a porthole onto the North Atlantic, and I have always found that to be another sort of oddly prescient thing about this story. Um, so it's just it's endlessly fascinating, as you say, and I'm just really grateful to you for for laying out all of these really rich details for us to consider. I now like to pivot the conversation in a very different direction compared to uh, where we've been focusing on the on the history of the the Widener uh, relationship with with Dr. Rosenbach and Harvard. Ever since I first heard this story some years ago, it's always seemed to me that Eleanor Elkins Widener's process of moving from debilitating sorrow to a sense of really strong mission and purpose around building her deceased son's book collection and library to remarriage and a new new lease on life is really a case study for healing from a, a, a difficult experience of grief. Today, in 2021, we find ourselves, as individuals and as a nation, in an era when innumerable Americans and people around the world are struggling with grief brought about by the COVID-19 pandemic. I would like to have a conversation about what Mrs. Widener's story might teach us about processing grief today. 
In so many ways, Mrs. Widener, who was a wealthy aristocrat, can feel completely unrelatable to most of us in 2021. But then again, she was also a grieving wife and a mother who had lived through a horrifying disaster. Dr. Sue Morris, you've written extensively on bereavement. In the popular press, we often encounter references to stages of grief. Are there set stages of grief? And as a practitioner, are you able to objectively classify how people respond to traumatic deaths in their lives? By which I mean, are some experiences of this nature always worse uh, than others in people's lives? Uh, Thanks, Alex. Um, Yes, look, regarding uh, stages of grief, which we do hear a lot about in the popular press, I think clinicians would tend to say that that there are no set stages uh, of grief but, and that grief is not linear but rather that we consider grief as a unique experience and each person will cope you know in their own way but based on their personality uh, you know their coping style and the circumstances surrounding the, the death such as you know whether the death was sudden or following you know a long illness for example but in relation to how people respond to the death of a loved one uh, clinicians who, you know, work in bereavement tend to think about risk factors uh, or those factors that might make it more likely that a person will have a more difficult or prolonged bereavement. Uh, the common risk factors, you know, that we know in the literature, they include a sudden or unexpected death, uh, a traumatic death, uh, the death of a child and the death of an only child are risk factors, as well as, you know, witnessing a difficult death having little social support and, you know, perhaps a history of psychiatric disorders such as depression. So in the case of Mrs. Widener, you know, straight off we can identify several risk factors. Uh, She experienced two sudden or unexpected deaths that were obviously traumatic. Uh, She, you know, lost her husband as well as her son Harry. Uh, In addition to what we can only imagine must have been a very traumatic experience for herself you know, that kind of seeing others drown while being rescued from the sinking ship, Uh, you know, leading, you know, in that case, I think about survivor's guilt, which we often kind of encounter. So Mrs. Widener is certainly someone I would have worried about um, if I was meeting her back then. Uh, And But from a, you know, preventative care model, you know, I certainly hope that she was able to access whatever support was available to her at the time, uh, especially because she had to grieve both Harry and her husband Though I think listening to kind of Leslie's commentary, I feel probably a little bit less worried about everything that she went on to do, which I know we'll talk a little bit about later. Sue, what should a person expect when experiencing grief? What's the roadmap uh, to recovery if there if there is one? Sure, that's a that's a great question. Um, you know, obviously, as I said, everyone's experience is different, but I think. You know, the best roadmap that I often lay out for the bereaved individuals who I'm working with is to think of grief as coming in waves, which is, you know, obviously really fitting in this case. Uh, So imagining in the beginning the waves are very frequent and intense and they're characterised by deep sadness and a yearning or longing to be with the person again. But over time the waves tend to lessen in intensity and frequency and and though the wave-like pattern is also punctuated by larger waves, you know, some you can anticipate such as, you know, those larger waves corresponding to a significant date such as a birthday or an anniversary, to others that come out of the blue, um, such as, you know, hearing a song on the radio that reminds you of your loved one. 
But these kind of larger waves, they can kind of hit at any time, often months or years later. So what kind of we think helps people going back to that roadmap is that early in their grief, uh, especially, we want to think about how do we facilitate the easing of this wave. And the things that I'm always recommending to people is, you know, having a routine, even if it's a really simple routine, um, taking care of themselves both physically and emotionally because, you know, grief is much more stressful than we kind of anticipate. Um, It can be certainly physically. And then connecting socially with those uh, they feel supported by where they can, you know, reminisce about the loved one. And I think, you know, when we heard this in the case of uh, Mrs. Weiner, but the goal of, you know, grieving and that roadmap is to really help someone integrate the loss into their lives where the relationship with the person who died goes from one that was, you know, based on a physical and emotional relationship to now one that is based on memory and legacy. And we obviously see that in the case of Mrs. Widener, she really focused on uh, shifting that relationship with Harry to one that was based on his legacy and, you know, following obviously Harry's instructions, which I think most likely helped her significantly. Sue, I think it's very notable that the body of George Widener was recovered from the sea following the sinking of the Titanic, but the remains of Harry Elkins Widener were never found. This means that he doesn't have a true grave in the sense of a place to to mourn his physical remains, and in some senses the Widener Memorial Library and the book collection that his mother continued to build, as Leslie described for us, are a sort of mausoleum to his memory in keeping with this Western tradition of monument making as a death ritual. So this leads me to two questions for you. First, what role do rituals and ceremonies play in helping people process grief, knowing that this varies considerably across cultures and time periods. And secondly, to bring this to the time in which we find ourselves during this time of pandemic, when so many people have not been able to engage in rituals around the the passing of a loved one or some other loss in their lives, how would you recommend uh, people use smaller scale rituals or perhaps deferred rituals to help process grief? Yeah, that's, again, really, really... um important, especially with the pandemic, you know, I think we can say in our, you know, Western society that, you know, rituals and ceremonies are are very important um, as they create structure and a space for acknowledging that someone has died. And, you know, they allow others, other people to pay their respects um, and to offer support from, you know, that community to the bereaved family or the bereaved individual's So in a way, I I see that these uh, rituals and traditions, they signal to others that, you know, this person or this family is grieving and they need our support. And, you know, and I think in regard to the pandemic, you know, we saw, you know, especially very early on in the the pandemic, uh, families couldn't have wakes or funerals or other services to honour their their deceased loved one, or they were very limited to a very small number of people. And so... You know, I think over the past year we've seen people have become really creative um, using technology, you know, such as virtual services or gatherings, um, holding outdoor celebrations of life, or perhaps gathering, you know, to acknowledge the first anniversary when, you know, the restrictions have eased. I'm seeing a lot of people now who are, you know, doing things a year later in honour of the person who's died. 
But I think if we consider other losses in the pandemic, because, you know, clearly there's been many losses not just related to the death of our loved ones, one strategy that, you know, really comes to mind is to dedicate time and space to acknowledge and share these losses with those who are experiencing something similar. Um, you know, maybe this is with colleagues at work or school or within the community in which you live. You know, we tend to live in this really fast-paced world and I think we really need to kind of find uh, structure and space to do this. You know, the pandemic has affected us all in many different ways and, you know, I'm a really strong believer in that sharing these experiences with others is important. Um, At our hospital here in Boston, uh, you know, very early on, we scheduled regular sessions um, where small groups of us as, you know, clinicians or staff, you know, we met over Zoom to talk about how the pandemic had impacted our personal and professional lives. And and just by doing this, it, it helped as you realise that, you know, others understood or at least had a sense of what you were going through and that, you know, you weren't alone. And I think this is so powerful. Thank you for listening to the Rosenbach Podcast. Check back soon for another peek into the Rosenbach's remarkable collection of rare books, manuscripts, art, and artifacts, and for more fascinating conversations about history, literature, and culture. My conversation with Leslie A. Morris, Susan D. Block, and Sue E. Morris of Harvard University continues on the next episode. The Rosenbach's community reaches all around the globe, brought together by our love for history, rare books, manuscripts, and the arts. I hope you'll consider supporting the Rosenbach and this podcast by becoming a member today. It's one of the best ways to help us with projects like this. Memberships start at just $55 and give you access to everything we have to offer online and in person. Thank you for your support. If you enjoy the introductory and concluding music featured on the podcast, which was composed and performed by Rosenbach Board of Directors member Yolanda Wisher and her band The Afro Eaters, and was recorded at WRTI 90.1 in Philadelphia for NPR Live Sessions, visit WRTI.org to learn more. Also, please consider purchasing Yolanda Wisher's new album. Just visit Rosenbach.org for information. The Rosenbach Podcast is supported by a grant from the Evelyn Toll Family Foundation. Thanks again, and I look forward to continuing our conversation on the next episode of the Rosenbach Podcast. <laughs>